Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Hello and welcome to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Each week at this time, we bring you a different uh, in-depth discussion with a creative person in Mississippi. They could be artists, they could be musicians, photographers, craftspeople, or people who help present the music or the culture of the state. And I think we're talking with one of those today, a very legendary. uh, This is an interesting Arts Hour in that our guest is hosting us. So I'm in the studios of the legendary Malico Records in Jackson, Mississippi, and I'm joined by Malico's president, Tommy Couch Jr. Tommy, thanks for having us. Absolutely. Glad you're here, Larry. Well, this is a great time. Malico is kind of celebrating its its, its successes and and uh, its long history with a brand new book that you guys just put out. Tell us a little bit about, uh, it's a beautiful book, coffee table book, lots of pictures, uh, large format. Tell us about why you guys at this point decided to, to put this out. Well, we did it to celebrate our 50-year anniversary, and nothing's ever exact with small business. You know, we, we even had long discussions of, well, when did Malico really start? Although Malico really, it started as a booking agency and promotion company, the actual name Malico, and that really goes back to like 65, but once the studio was, I think, officially incorporated, is uh was in 68 so we started this project a few years ago in order to hit the 50-year anniversary with that but everything between the you know the covid and just other planning things it uh it got pushed back just a little bit but uh it's it's i think well worth the wait so the label has a long history what did how did you when you guys first started thinking about it what did you say, well, what do we really need to include and what, what, what do we want this thing to look like? I mean, it could have been a, a small book up on a shelf, but you made well, this large format book. With yeah, Tommy Sr. really wanted it to be a, uh, you know, like a picture book or a coffee table book. We've got wonderful pictures from the last, from the whole history of the company. And some have been seen on album covers and that sort of thing, a few articles and so that's kind of originally what he was thinking. And then the more he thought about it, Rob Bowman, who had written the uh, liner notes for our 30-year box set anniversary, we've uh, remained close to him. He's a great guy. We started kicking the idea around. and said, well, why don't we have Rob come in and expand that 30-year? Because when we did that, it was really just about the R&B side. But gospel was such a big part of Malico as well. And then there's a lot that's happened in the last 20 years. The business has totally changed. So uh, Rob was really excited about it. He uh, got a Grammy nomination for the liner notes of the Malico book and uh, was real excited to jump on board and uh, take this project on, and he did a great job. And it seems like it's being well-received. I mean, my first mention, I was woke up to it being on national public radio an interview with him so it seems like the it's getting out there in terms of uh, feedback on it it really is it, it's easy for a lot of people to kind of 
want to hear and pull for the, the little guy. A lot of the articles and stuff start out, this is a story that never should have been told. You know, the longest-running, successful, still-operating uh, independent record company in the world is based in Jackson, Mississippi. And why Jackson? That doesn't make any sense. You don't start a music business in Jackson, Mississippi. But to us, it, this is where we were from, so it made total sense. And so the, you mentioned kind of the, the, the booking side first. That was kind of the initial seeds of it was your father, Tommy Couch Sr., taking on, was it in his fraternity in college, being, you know, some booking some bands? Yeah, it was a lot of coincidental things that kind of lined up. He was, uh, he grew up in Tuscumbia, Alabama, which is northwest Alabama, and, and part of the Tri-Cities with Muscle Shoals, Sheffield, and Tuscumbia. So as he was growing up, he was friends with Jimmy Johnson and David Hood and some of the guys that, you know, Rick Hall had already started having success at Fame Studios. So he went, you know, went to Ole Miss and was going to be a pharmacist and invited, a, I guess, Jimmy's band down to play at, at the Pike House at Ole Miss. And they did, you know, everybody loved it. And Jimmy said, hey, why don't you uh, find us some other dates and we could pay you 10% on, off of what we make? And Dad thought about it. He said, wow, you mean why? <laughs> so, uh that kind of got him fired up, and they started a, uh, you know, just with that seed being planted, started booking bands, you know, all over for a lot of the fraternities and sororities at Ole Miss and then other places. I know there was a, uh, the kind of final seed was, I think there was a big Ole Miss football game down here, and they promoted a show after the game at the King Edwards Hotel. And had great success with it. I mean, these were small-town college boys and made really good money, and they're like, wow, this is what we need to be doing, yeah. you know. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and today I'm in Malico Studios in Jackson, and I'm talking with Tommy Couch, Jr., the president of Malico, about their new book, The Last Soul Company, The Malico Record Story, just came out. So... Your dad relocates to Jackson after Ole Miss, and then I guess he's seeing the success of his friends in Muscle Shoals. He's they're seeing stacks up in Memphis, and they just say, "Hey, let's start. Let's try to do this as well." Or I mean, how did they? Yeah, get to kind, that? kinda, but not not exactly. Okay. So here's what happened. He uh, they were down here. He had moved down, and he was working as a pharmacist over in Westland Plaza but still was doing the music stuff. And my uncle, Mitchell Maloof, that's when they came together and, and formed Malico for Maloof and Couch. So they were, they were still booking, and they had, they had started, started a club called the Hullaboy. So they were managing some, some acts, and they felt like, you know, in, in order to better expose our acts, we need to have good demo tapes. So they had gone up and recorded a few demos at Fame Studios and Muscle Shoals. The Muscle Shoals rhythm section was still at Fame at that time. So, you know, they did that, and they said, well, that was pretty good. And Well, maybe we ought to have our own studio. So it was a great case of just not knowing that you can't do it, so they just did it. And, and it was never immediate success. They did that and, you know, kind of sitting around and go, well, we got to, we got a studio now. Now what do we do? So they were doing uh, 
anything they could to, you know, rent the studio. They were doing jingles, you know, different commercials. I think Dr. Guyton came in. We've still got stuff in the vault where he came in at some point in the late 60s, early 70s, and basically, I guess, I hadn't listened to the tapes, but maybe narrated some of his books or something. Yeah, he was the legendary physician at, at UMC. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, did, like, open-heart surgery, or was it, like, a pioneer with heart, heart surgery or something like yeah, that? Yeah, he was a big deal. Yeah. I, was, I, I, right. and, you know, I think they still use a lot of his findings and books mm-hmm. and stuff now. But, you know, that was just kind of a, a total aside of, you know, just something to use the studio for. So, you know, they're doing that, and they were, they were going, well, we need to make some music. And maybe Wolf or Dad, I don't know which one, said, well, you know, remember at the Pike House, we'd have uh, Mississippi Fred McDowell, he'd come by and do these afternoon parties. And I said, yeah, well, he's cool. Why don't we go get him, see if he wants. So they called up to the Stuckies and Como and talked to him. And one of them drove up, and maybe both, I don't know, picked him up and drove him down and had a recording session. And they shopped it around and Capital uh, licensed it from them and it went on to get a uh, Grammy nomination and it was a very acclaimed record. Uh, I do not play no rock and roll. And so they were like, well, this is this is cool. So it, it was just another one of the ways they just kind of started. I liked in the book, there was some quotes from Wolf Stevenson, one of the one of the founders who was kind of the head of the studio talking about they really didn't understand the equipment and they were just literally like calling their friends in Muscle Shoals like, hey, how do we do this? And, you know, just trying to figure it out as they went along. They did. Yeah. And uh, Wolf has got a really good electronic mind. I think he had done some uh, some work with that earlier in, in high school. He was an electrician or electrician's assistant, something, you know. So he understood wires and, and some circuits and stuff. So... He was kind of in charge of that and uh, still doing, you know, a lot of the technical stuff today. So in that time period, there was this thing where a small label could get a national hit. So some of these smaller places were, well, you're recording something and then you're, it's it's not coming out in your label, but it's getting exactly. picked up by a bigger label. Yeah. Uh, that was kind of the, the game at the time. You, you could record, but uh, you would still need a bigger label that you would license it to and and they would do the promotion and the marketing and the distribution so that was kind of what they started doing in the early well i guess maybe in early 70 they had uh, uh, a guy from new orleans come up waddell kazari and he brought on one weekend he brought three or four acts up and one of them was uh gene knight and one of them was King Floyd. And in the same afternoon, they recorded Mr. Big Stuff and Groove Me, which were both number one R&B records. And maybe one or two of them, they were both top five pop. I'm not exactly sure of the number. Yeah. Huge records. Right. Still huge records today and, and sampled and used in commercials and that sort of thing. So that really kind of, I guess, ignited the, like, Hey, we can do this. You know, they've they've proven something, and so, so that became that kind of chasing those hits, trying to find that that next one that you can. Kind it of did, get up and there. but again, things are slow to develop. So they 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 had these songs, and they felt good about them. The first song was the King Floyd, and maybe they started out putting it out on their own. 
the groove me was the B side. The song that they wanted, I can't even remember the name of it, that was the A side. They had sent it to a DJ down in New Orleans, and he called them the next morning. He said, man, y'all got a hit. They said, yeah, we thought it was really good. He said, yeah, that groove me is something. They said, no, 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 that's not it. He said, no, 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 that's it. You're playing the wrong side. Yeah, you know, you're playing the wrong one. This other one's prettier, and it's got strings on it. it? No, that's the hit. What had happened is maybe his daughter, who was younger, had a spend-the-night party, and they they started, you know, they didn't know what they were supposed to play. They just put the record on and started playing it. He said those kids played it all night, and uh, they were in the game but had the wrong song, but fortunately it it was on the other side. So good. Well, let's take a quick music break and hear a sample from the – from the massive catalog of Malico. This is kind of jumping ahead, but kind of one of the big early stars are kind of got Malico into its era of working with a lot of R&B and blues musicians was uh, ZZ Hill coming to the label. Z- so we, well, we thought we'd play a ZZ Hill song. So talk a little bit about ZZ's importance. Well, well, ZZ Hill, you're exactly right. We are moving ahead a little bit. Right. But, but ZZ Hill, when Down Home Blues came out, it changed the way that black radio perceived the soul music that was getting ready to start coming from Malico. We were just coming out of disco, and this was a real song that you could feel, real instruments, and and it just it affected you. And it received big airplay, not just in the South, but New York, Cleveland, Detroit, Chicago. And it, it made it okay for the rest of this music that was about to come to be played on major radio. So, so it really opened the floodgates for you all. A- absolutely. Yeah. It was a very important song. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey. And our guest today is Tommy Couch Jr., the president of Malico Records. He's hosting us here in Malico's studio in Jackson, Mississippi. One thing that, you know, I've heard, I've I've read, I think I had the box set and know kind of the broader story of Malico. But in the book, the one little area that's really interesting to me is kind of that late before, kind of in the disco era. Of course, the the big hit, I guess, at that time was Dorothy Moore's Misty Blue. Back in the, right, the 70s. But, uh, mid-70s. but before we get to ZZ Hill, there's kind of this era of they're trying a bunch of different things. And that uh, Anita Ward's Ring My Bell was recorded here. It and, was. It and, was. Really, if, if, let's jump back just a little bit and we'll go real fast. Yeah. So you had you had the 70s, early 70s with uh, 
King Floyd, and Jane Knight. J- Jane Knight with Mr. Big Stuff was licensed to Stax. So the next few years, the uh, a lot of emphasis was on King Floyd. And he followed with several hits. Not not as big as Groove Me, but, you know, was going, well, the Pointer Sisters came in. Stax had sent a few of their artists down to record. And that kind of started to dry up a little bit. And so they, they took one of their background singers in, who was from around here. It was Dorothy Moore. Dad said, well, let's cut this song Misty Blue on her. It was originally a country song, and they did it and uh, and tried to get it placed, and nobody wanted it. Nobody would take it. Nobody wanted it. And after a couple of years, I mean, it, it was getting pretty thin at Malico, and they basically said, well, something's got to try to happen. And they pulled the little money they had left, and this was several years after it was recorded, and had Misty Blue pressed up and and mailed out to the radio, and they were right. It was a hit. So that, you know, was kind of through 76, and it was, a, or I guess 75 or 76, maybe kind of a combination of both, end of one and beginning of the other. But uh, major, major hit, and they had several other good projects with Dorothy. And then the disco was really sitting on us, so it was uh, kind of slowing down. Freedom who was a local band, had, had had some success, and much later, much success later on through samples. But so these were real important things that were happening, although they weren't really, they were kind of exciting unless you were trying to feed your kids. They weren't real profitable, but, but they were cool things. Well, so talk about how gospel came to Malico, because that was, I guess that wasn't part of their original plan either to, to, to get into gospel, but did it, it came through some local musicians kind of it, coming to them? It did, and what's funny, they didn't really have a, a, a plan. There was no master plan, you know, from the beginning, like I said, with the Dr. Guyton stuff and the commercials. and the, So there really was no master plan, but so, yes, you're exactly right. The first gospel really started with the Jackson Southerners, who were from Jackson, but they were signed to, originally I think they were signed to Duke Peacock, who was bought out by ABC, who was a major corporation and was over based out of California. One of the ways that the gospel groups made good money was being able to sell records on, on the weekends for their shows. Well, it was a major ordeal to get, you know, a company in California to get you 300 records on Friday. So you could go out and work that weekend and, you know, pay for them the next week and get some more. So, they approached Malico and said, you know, maybe this would be a good idea. Y'all have got the studio, and we know y'all are having some success, and we're here. Let's, why don't we do this gospel? Let's do this. And they signed, and it was great. It was really good for everyone. They were a very successful quartet group. Immediately after that, they signed the uh, Sensational Nightingales and the Pilgrim Jubilees and just, you know, started building this gospel catalog because a lot of these groups, they were either with older companies who had been bought up by the majors, and so they they didn't have a personal relationship with their record company now. And if they sold fifteen or twenty thousand copies to one of the major labels, nobody cared. But to Malico, they were they were part of the family. They were part of the group, you know, part of the label, and and 
Everyone was important. So if they wanted to come in and talk about something, well, y'all come on in. Matter of fact, when uh, when I, I remember when Dad, when Malico signed uh, the Sensational Nightingales, that Dad, I think Frank and uh, Williams, who was one of the, the members of the Jackson Southern Airs, which is, everything kind of builds on this, you know. And maybe Dave Clark flew over to the Carolinas to sign the, the Sensational Nightingales. And just, you know, it's like, wow, that's good. Why are they going, you know, to do that? So, well, they're one of the two or three biggest quartet groups there that there is. And so they, you know, they just made good moves that made sense, that weren't big gambles, but it was kind of staying as they identified where they were heading and having a little bit of success. They, Malico stayed true to that. They seemed very good about finding those underserved audiences who were also like loyal customers. So like you're saying, the Jackson Southern Airs sell 20,000 records, but those same 20,000 people will buy the next record and the next record and, you know, they're with them. That's exactly right. And and then you expand that base a little bit because, you know, the Southern, uh, the uh, Nightingales or the Pilgrim Jubilees, the Soul Stars, these are all bigger groups that were looking for a place to be. And they were in different parts of the country a little bit. So they have a lot of the same audience, but the audience expands a little bit because of the different geographical areas. And then you start exposing your other groups. It it all works together. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and we're in the legendary Malico Studios of the Malico Record Label in Jackson. And we're talking with Tommy Couch Jr., the president of Malico, about their new book, The Last Soul Company, The Malico Record Story. Let's step out of the the history a little bit, and I want to hear about your memories of it. Growing up kind of around the business, was this something that you always wanted to pursue yourself professionally to be part of it? Or what what are your kind of early memories of being connected to it as a kid and growing up around it? Well, the earliest memories were being really little, and Paul Davis or George Soule, who were young songwriters from Meridian, I guess back in the late 60s, coming over and, you know, spending the week at Malico writing songs or playing on songs. And and some of the times they they would stay at our house, you know. So these guys were around and they were kind of cool. And, and then coming out and watching, I remember Paul being in the studio one day and it couldn't have been more than five or six on a Saturday. And he was playing the keyboards, and then they'd stop, and he'd go back, and he would do the drums. And, you know, he's doing a lot of the stuff himself. And I thought, wow, that's that's kind of cool, you know? And then how it would all come together to be a song. So those were real early memories. I started, I guess, in eighth or ninth grade as a summer job when we had a little bitty warehouse coming out and uh, helping to pack boxes, pack orders, and that sort of thing. And when I'd get finished, I'd actually go sit in Stuart Madison's office, who was doing a lot of the business, and would just listen to him. So I'd sit there for hours, and listen to him negotiate deals or, 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 you know, ask him questions when he wasn't on the phone. And that really kind of, the music was planted early, but the business was planted not, not very long after. And just watching how the thought process and what was going on. And then you kind of 
followed in your dad's footsteps. You started booking when you were in college as well, I did. right? So talk and, about that. Well, and so I went to Ole Miss in 84, and we were DJing dances and stuff in high school. But uh, started the booking agency and used the same name, Campus Attractions, and uh, had a. we were successful at doing it. And uh, several of our bands, it's kind of fun to see who goes on and, and to do what, but uh, – Pat Hood, who was uh, had a band called Adam's House Cat, is now Patterson Hood with the Drive By Truckers. Oh, so uh, you booked them back then? Booked yeah, back, back then. early on. Awesome. Greg Isles was uh, in a band called Frankly Scarlet from Natchez, and he he it was a leader of the band and uh, left the band because he had got a uh, a big advance to to become an author and. Well, now, I mean, look look how well he's done. Better than Ezra. We picked those guys up. They were just starting to be a frat band down in Baton Rouge. But one of our bands, the High Tops, was having a lot of success in Baton Rouge. And so we came together because of that. And they've gone on to have great success. And then out of the High Tops, you've got John Sturd, who's the bass player for Wilco. And you've got Carrie Hudson. Who has gone on? Carrie and Laurie did Blue Mountain, and 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 now Carrie's doing his stuff. So it's really fun to see, you know, when you're exposed to a group of guys, you never really know who's gonna be the one to, you know, really jump up. But it's just, you know, kind of being around. It's it's, it's great to see the success that all of these, you know, different guys have had. It's interesting to think about how many people that have gone on like that all came out of a Kind of like Malico, I guess, the 60s. You had that small group of people that yeah. kind of circulated in North Mississippi. Who've, That's right. Who've become and we were all in North Mississippi at the time, although no one was really from North Mississippi. But right. Ole Miss brought, because it was Ole Miss, it, 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 it kind of brought a lot of people in. So we're going to do another music break. And so we want to play something from kind of more of the recent era. And one of the artists that you worked with uh, here in developing him was Mel Waiters, the late Mel Waiters. Absolutely. So tell, yeah. us a, tell us a little about Mel, and then we'll listen to one of his songs. Mel was a, a DJ originally from San Antonio, Texas, and I'd gone to the Jackson Music Awards, and I, I didn't really know anything about him. He was playing and, and, and did two or three songs, and I was just like, wow. And after the show, I approached him and said, look, I'd like for you to come by Malico tomorrow and let's talk. We might ought to be working together. And he did, and he left with with the deal. And he went on the the first record that we put out had I got my whiskey on it, and we just had great success with it. And we came up with a real fun campaign. To, when we mailed out the next one, we mailed out a little bottle of whiskey i'm not sure we were probably supposed to have done that <laughs> but uh and with a big thing that says now that you've got your whiskey let's go to the hole in the wall and the hole in the wall was just a huge hit yeah. and we got big airplay not not just locally but you know all over the major stations the the big station in houston was playing it over 50 times a week the big fm station it, it was great and like down home blues it's just become one of these songs that it's on every jukebox still, and yeah. it's referenced in other songs. That's you know, right. right. Still still today, we, we, yeah. you know, when I looked at our YouTube numbers this morning, Hole in the Wall and Got My Whiskey are, are in our top ten 
stream songs yesterday. Yeah. It's crazy. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour for our final segment. I'm Larry Morrissey, and we're talking with Tommy Couch Jr., the president of Malico Records, and we're talking about their brand new book of history, The Last Soul Company, The Malico Records Story. You were mentioning off air that, you know, while you guys are kind of celebrating this long history that we've been talking about, that there's still... Malco's still in the game and things are still happening for y'all. So j- just tell me what you were talking about just a minute ago about yeah, that. Yeah, we, uh, well, w- the week of a few weeks ago when the book came out, coincidentally, that week we had the number one gospel record in Billboard. There was Byron Cage's I Can't Give Up. So while, you know, people were wanting to talk about the history and what's been going on, we had four songs, you know, in the top 40 on the gospel charts right now with number one being Byron Cage. So, you know, fortunately, everything is still moving along very well. Well, let's talk about the, the changes in the business. And you've been the, kind of the, you know, seeing that over like the last 20 years. The The old model was, you know, the Jackson Southerners coming by and getting records and you selling, you know, records. But now, you know, obviously, everybody knows the big changes in the music industry. Sure, so well, the, do, the digital and, yeah. and, and, you know, the consolidation with radio stations. That's loosened up a little bit because of the digital now. There are ways to, uh, you know, for, for people to be exposed to music besides just that local radio station, which was a great model, but they were all bought by two or three companies and programmed from Washington or New York. So they would tell you what you wanted to hear as opposed to, what your local DJs knew you wanted to hear. So we had to overcome that. Uh, the bootlegging was a really big problem. We, we did really well with all the independent mom-and-pop stores, and so they knew what a Malico record was supposed to sound like, and when a new one would come in, we would send them all sample copies. They had listened to it, and sure enough, their customers would come in, and it'd be, Miss Smith, I know you love this this Jackson Southern Airs record, well, this Willie Nell record just came in on Malico. You ought to listen to it. And so they were our salesmen. So we were a great team working together. Well, when the bootlegging started, we started hearing that some of our stores, not that we own, but that we work with, they were taking our, our promo copies and burning and selling bootleg CDs in, instead of buying the records. And it, you know, so all of that really kind of started falling apart at one time. The digital thing started happening, and we said, well, gosh, people are 
Now they're stealing our music for free. We can't sell records. The radio play isn't working. What in the world are we doing? We got to be the dumbest guys in the room. But we went ahead and we embraced the the digital, and we we learned that really with digital we were you, you were able to sell some downloads then. That's when Apple was coming in. But they were doing singles and. Malico always survived. The reason we had so much success with ZZ Hill is we purposefully did not sell a single. So we sold over half a million records because in order to get the song, they had to buy the album. Now, it was a great album, and everyone was happy that they did it, but they would have normally just bought that one single. So we didn't really operate or have never really operated off of a singles market, and that's what Apple was forcing us to do. So we kind of bit our tongue and, and, and did it. I guess one of the other things that you guys decide on is, is gospel, gospel labels out there that were going defunct or they were being sold and resold. So you've, you've really, ex, you really expanded Since your... Since the 80s, yeah. we have uh, taken the profits that were made and invested in the other companies and other publishing companies, master companies, that sort of thing. Savoy Records we bought in the 80s, uh, Muscle Shoals Sound with the publishing and, and masters, uh, mid-80s. We did a deal with uh, Atlanta International. We've bought several other smaller labels since then. We partnership with Selecto Hits up in Memphis to uh, provide our distribution back in the, the 90s. And together we acquired masters in, in publishing. So we've always tried to look for the you know to the future and to keep working that content is king theory. Talk a little bit about the, the, the sampling world and how that, I'm guessing with having that large catalog now with all these, not just what Malico recorded, but these other things, it's, it's a, there's, there's a lot of possibilities that you can offer those people that are looking for the kind of classic sound, you know, there are possibilities, but the best way to offer them is is kind of doing what we're doing right now. We're digitizing everything that we've got and making putting it up on all the digital platforms. We get lots of requests for for samples and and different movie placements and commercials, but we're not smart enough to figure out where they're going. We would love to be able to put together a, a top 100 list and, you know, make it available to all these guys. But the community knows what they want, I, you know, and, and the musicians out there. Most of the things that the requests that come in are stuff that we could never have anticipated. It's not the hits. It's not the bigger things. It's got this really cool lick or something. How these guys think and where they come up with it it's it's totally random, and we we we've had lots of meetings trying to figure out we need to get ahead of this, and really the only way we can get ahead of it is to put it out there. Be be sure that everything is accessible, and the the producers and DJs they find it. Uh, Wolf Stevenson was in here just before we got started and was t- telling me about kind of his. Uh, his work kind of taking some of those old, old tapes. So he's that's part of his thing is to get we, that stuff. We had thousands right. of masters that we had acquired through some of these, you know, buying Atlanta International or Savoy. And this is one of the blessings of, of the digital age. You couldn't afford to take all those masters and physically make product. You just, you, you, you know, you need to be able to sell 2,000 CDs. Well, 
some of these things would never sell two thousand, and we no one could afford to do that. But one of the true benefits of digital, we can spend the time up front, and we have to bake and go through the process and all this. But to get these old masters onto a digital platform, so some of it has commercial success, some of it is just kind of preserving the uh, history and the integrity of the gospel music and, and these different older recordings that should be there. But for the past three years, we've had three to four guys at a time working on this with Wolf heading it up, and we have probably converted maybe 3,500 albums to digital, and, and they're all available everywhere now. So it's, it's been a good thing. You're listening to the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and I'm talking with Tommy Couch Jr. He's the president of Malico Records, and we're talking about their brand new book, The Last Soul Company. What are some maybe it'd be interesting for the listeners? Maybe some of the these unlikely th- people that have jumped out and maybe gone on to be licensed for a movie or or a sample. Or what are what are some examples of things that maybe you could point to that are recent ones? Well, about a year ago, year and a half ago, Walmart ran an extensive campaign using Ring My Bell. Google ran at least a two-cycle ad campaign here in America with a remix of Work It Out that was one of our uh, gospel songs, Jesus Can Work It Out. And then it went on and they picked it up for... Germany and Australia and Japan, and I I think they just licensed it for another territory last week. We've had a lot of samples by by John Legend and uh, DJ Khaled and Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion and 2 Chainz and Trippy Red and Kanye West, and you know, it just goes on and on. We, We may get a sample or two sample requests a week come in. Well, and I wanted to, and it's mentioned in the book as well. So we are in Malico's main studio, but this is not the historic studio that, that you're starting. It, so. We had to rebuild the studio. It's it's where you're sitting. You would have still been on the floor of the old studio, but we had to come in and tear. Well, the tornado demolished. It, it, it was just ten years ago. We had to totally demolish the studio. The building that, that you came in where the, the executive offices are, we uh, had to totally rebuild that. And then the warehouse, every building we had was, was, was damaged. The vault was only slightly damaged, and so all the masters survived, but everything else has been totally rebuilt. It gave us an opportunity to actually get organized. Malico, when it started out, it was just part of a little Pepsi warehouse over here on Northside Drive, and... As it grew and one of the other tenants left, Malico would take that area over. But so we just kind of added on as need it be. And the studio was in the heart of everything, which is good because the music is the heart of what we do. But as business grew, we started strangling the heart. So this gave us an opportunity to pull the studio back and have creative on one side of the parking lot. And uh, so we can have people coming in and out. You know, we've opened the studio back up for rental. It gives us the opportunities to work with a lot of new talent that's out and available that normally we wouldn't have been able to because all of our corporate offices were surrounding it. 
So you'd be really limited about sessions and things you'd like that. You'd be limited or... about sessions. And, you know, if you had big business meetings going on, you didn't want a lot of noise. Or even though if it was great music, it was still noise. So uh, this this allows us to have the total creative side over in the studio. And, you know, you can have business meetings or carry on and do other things, accounting or whatever, in the other two buildings. That was a really scary tornado too. You were, were you were on the were you here when it happened? Yeah, I was here. It was uh, look our whole lives growing up in Mississippi. Remember going and sitting in, in the hall with a book on your head. You know we've done this our whole lives, and you hear about tornadoes, tornadoes, tornadoes. Well, Tyron Lewis was uh, who's a good friend of mine. He was in uh, Clinton and called me and said, Tommy, I'm over here and there's a tornado and it's it just came down the street and it's heading towards Malico. So we let everybody know, and, well, as soon as we did that, I had to go outside and look for the tornado. I knew what direction it was coming, I, yeah, I wanted to see it. And it was kind of cool watching it come, and, you know, right at the last second, we ducked back in the building, and it hit. And it was it was really intense, you know, and the, the pressure and the noise. But it really only lasted about 10 or 11 seconds, and then it was gone. You know, I hollered out into my building, is everybody okay? Because I'd send all the employees down to the lower level that was where it was more brick and, and, and concrete. And everybody's, yeah, we're, we're fine. All the power, of course, and everything was gone. So I walked out. I said, God, that was kind of cool. And as soon as I walked out the door, our middle building was right there on, on my right, and it was basically gone. And then it's like, wow, this was really serious. And we had three employees that were in the building. Then it got real scary because there, there was no way really anyone could have survived it. it. It was demolished. And I was looking across the parking lot, and the studio was just battered. It had picked the roof up and twisted it. But back to the employees, they were in there, and there's no way. Wolf walked out of the studio, and, are y'all all right? I said, yeah, but Jane and Nathan and Rosetta were in this building. He was like, oh, my God. And about a minute later, they come walking around the corner, and they had been in the building, and they were in the one spot. They were God had literally placed his hand over them. None of them needed a Band-Aid. They were, they, they were all fine. So once everyone was all right, then we immediately had to go into, all right, this is what we got, and let's get it cleaned up. And it was about a year, year and a half process, but it was uh, wind up proving to be uh, – a silver lining with the way we've realigned everything, and uh, it was good. Well, Tommy, the the old clock on the wall says we've got to head out, but um, for people who are interested in learning more about the book and more about Malico, where where should they go? Well, the the first easiest answer would be go to malico.com, and that should be able to lead you to a lot of, you know, there's a lot of information on the website and a lot of links to, to other places to go. If you want to hear the music, all the digital outlets have it, whether it's uh, Apple or iTunes, well, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Pandora, Tidal, Amazon, uh, YouTube. Everything is up on YouTube. We've got several channels, Malico Gospel or Malico MG. You can go there. There's yeah, thousands of songs, videos, uh, started doing lyric videos. So there's all sorts. We've even got a few karaoke uh, videos up. So if you want to sing along, the words are there, but the lead vocals are out. So there's a lot of fun stuff. 
a lot of pictures and stuff on the website. So, you know, there's plenty of information out there with just a little bit of looking. You can find all of it. Well, Tommy, thank you so much for your time. I really yeah, appreciate I, it. I've enjoyed this. Thank you, Larry. Excellent. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Dr. Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit and Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app. 